I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free educational resource, you can support the show and get access to bonus episodes by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to Rebecca, Katie, Brianna, Jeff, V, Harold, and Sanam for their recent contributions. If Patreon's not your thing, but you still want to support the show, you can do so. You can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Okay, let's get on to today's show. Grotesque isn't really an everyday word, but when it is used in a colloquial context by, say, non-scholars, it refers to something that's disfigured, hideous, or distorted, though not necessarily in a manner that evokes dread or fear. Rather, the grotesque can be fantastic, mysterious, or even comical. A few examples of the grotesque common in our culture today are Halloween masks, gargoyles, and caricatures. I've always thought of grotesque as strange in a silly way. Anecdotally, I've heard people use the word grotesque as a fancy-sounding synonym for gross, but this definition isn't exactly right. For example, vomit, blood, and excrement aren't grotesque, at least not according to our current definition of the word. If this definition catches on, then by all means, let the word do what its speakers want it to, but I think using grotesque as a synonym for gross is more of a common mistake than an indication of an impending semantic shift. The only connection between grotesque and gross is that the two words sound similar. They are etymologically unrelated, and as it turns out, the etymology of grotesque is hiding in plain sight. Grotesque is a compound word comprising the parts grotto and the suffix esque. Grotesque originally meant grotto-esque as in, of a grotto, or in the style of a grotto. That's confusing, because a grotto is a small cave, so you're probably thinking, this must be referring to some other thing called a grotto. But no, grotesque literally means like a small cave. Clearly, I've got some explaining to do. Our story begins one day in the 1480s CE when an unnamed Italian was taking a stroll along the Esquiline Hill in Rome, one of the city's famed seven hills. Then, that person fell into a hole. They tumbled down into an underground grotto, and to their amazement, the walls of this grotto were exquisitely painted frescoes. Turns out, this wasn't a grotto at all. What this person had fallen into was a room in the basement of the Domus Aurea, the personal pleasure palace of the ancient Roman emperor Nero. Whether or not the story is 100% factual, this most extravagant palace of antiquity does indeed seem to have been discovered by chance. The Domus Aurea, Latin for Golden House, was built by Emperor Nero in the mid-60s AD, and before the rediscovery of its underground corridors, it was well documented in the written record, most notably by the Roman historian Suetonius. Of it, he writes, quote, 
The vestibule of the house was so big it contained a colossal statue 120 feet high, the image of Nero, and it was so extensive that it had three colonnades a mile long. There was a lake, too, in fact a sea, surrounded with buildings as big as cities. Behind it were villas with fields, vineyards, and pastures, woods filled with all kinds of wild and domestic animals. End quote. Now, like I said, when our hypothetical Italian fell into that hypothetical hole in the Esquiline Hill, the first thing that grabbed their attention was the frescoes that surrounded them. Word of these frescoes quickly spread to local Italian artists, and, given the time period, these artists happened to be some of the best-known and most important artists of all time. Ever heard of Raphael? Michelangelo? Yeah, these guys shimmied down to the Domus Aurea on ropes, probably wearing the 15th century equivalent of hard hats, to check out these long-lost frescoes. The impact of these frescoes on late 15th century European art was groundbreaking. The Domus Aurea's frescoes are whimsical in their subject matter and composition. Half-human, half-animal figures abound, with limbs extending into ornamental borders, often interwoven with foliage, tendrils, and other decorative embellishments that divide and subdivide in this direction and that, often in unnatural proportions. Free-floating shapes and lines are used to accent and contrast the contours of the main figures within compositions. The frescoes have an emphasis on geometry and symmetry, but in a nonsensical sort of way that, to me, feels like the ancient version of psychedelia. Talking about art without visuals isn't ideal, especially when you're not an art historian, so if you want to actually see what I'm talking about, just Google Roman grotesques or grotesques of the Domus Aurea. Anyway, this imaginative style the aesthetic of which would hardly be controversial in the 21st century, completely railed against the grammar of classical Roman art, which valued precision and realism in its subject matter and proportions. Renaissance works that emulated the more imaginative style of these paintings rediscovered in the quote-unquote grotto came to be known as grotesco in Italian, and that word's first attestation is attributed to none other than the great Raphael himself. It appears in a business contract between Raphael and the Piccolomini Library in which the artist was commissioned to create original grotesque for the interior of the building. Even after it was verified that these rediscovered frescoes were indeed part of the Domus Aurea and not just decorated grottos, their initial description as le pitture grotesque, or grotto paintings, stuck around. The way I've described the rediscovery of these grotesques, or what came to be known as grotesques, makes it sound like contemporary artists had never seen anything like this in their lives. About a century and a half before the life of Nero, a similar style of quote-unquote imaginative frescoes was popular, and this style was famously derided by the ancient architect Vitruvius in his Ten Books on Architecture. He refers to them as, quote, frescoes of bad taste, end quote. The opinion of these frescoes, according to many artists during the Renaissance, however, was contrary to that of Vitruvius. In their eyes, these newly discovered frescoes of bad taste astonished with their level of complexity and the extent of their imagination. Their rediscovery also revealed something about the aesthetic tastes of Romans during this period. 
public works of art still abided by naturalistic ideals, but in the privacy of their own homes, aristocratic Romans ostensibly preferred this lighter, more whimsical style. Popular Roman taste in art, at least during this period, may not have been as strict as previously thought. Perhaps the most influential adaptation of the grotto-esque style from the 15th century is found on the walls of the Vatican loggias, which were painted by Raphael and his pupils. During this time period, wealthy Romans also began commissioning other artists to paint elaborate grotesques in their villas. In the subsequent century, the Medicis commissioned dozens of grotesques to adorn the Palazzo Vecchio. For the sake of thoroughness, some non-household names associated with grotesques during the Renaissance include Daniel Barbaro, Piero Ligorio, and Gian Paolo Lamazzo. I want to emphasize again that the sense of grotesque in grotesque art from this time period does not in any way align with our modern sense of the grotesque. To broadly generalize, the sense of grotesque as we've been discussing it thus far simply means art that is implausible, proportionally irregular, and boldly odd by classical standards. And, of course, it describes a kind of art that was imitative of the frescoes found in Nero's palace. This definition of implausible and proportionally irregular does fit within our modern sense of grotesque, but it is not entirely our modern sense. The implausible and irregular proportions in this older sense of the grotesque apply to things like roofs held up by reeds, half-human, half-animal figures, and decorative vegetation that scarcely resembled plants in the real world. I should note that grotesque was, and still is sometimes, used as a synonym for arabesque and moresque. These are both styles of artistic decorations developed in the Islamic world that use complex interlacing tendrils, foliage, or lines. And these styles have virtually nothing in common with what we describe as grotesque today. So how did we transition from the original Renaissance sense of grotesque to the more familiar modern sense? Before we explore the answer to that question, a quick word from today's sponsor. If you run a small business, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for the roles you need to fill. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Now, I don't run a small business, but I did check out how the LinkedIn Jobs site works, and it's really simple and intuitive. You can create a free job posting in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. The interface lets you focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience by using screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then, using the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs, you can quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs has been ranked number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors, and I honestly can see why. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com words. That's linkedin.com words to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Okay. Back to the show. 
So as artists continued to imitate and further develop the style of art found in Nero's palace, it became trendy to include small, decorative, often free-floating faces within the grotesque composition. These faces often had strange, distorted, and in keeping with the overall theme of what defines the grotesque, anatomically implausible expressions. This style of representing the human face resembles what today we'd call a caricature. Though its inclusion within grotesques was new, the style itself was not. Medieval drolleries, which were small cartoonish illustrations contained in the margins of illuminated manuscripts, often contained characters with similar features. Because of their new association with grotesques, these faces came to be known as grotesque faces. In fact, sometimes medieval drolleries themselves are called grotesques, though the term is anachronistic. The application of the term grotesque to gargoyles, though conventional, is also anachronistic, as the appearance of gargoyles in Gothic architecture predates the current point in our story by at least three centuries. Grotesque as a descriptor for distorted human features soon spread beyond the context of grotesques themselves. As the art buffs among you may know, Leonardo da Vinci sketched several studies of grotesque heads, the most famous of which is creatively called The Study of Five Grotesque Heads. These studies date from the mid-1490s, just a decade and a half after the Domus Aurea was rediscovered, so the evolution of the term grotesque and the actual influence of the grotesque style clearly spread quickly. Leonardo's grotesque heads are ugly, deformed, and kind of scary looking, and it is here that we find a line of semantic continuity between the past and the present. From this point forward, the term grotesque became increasingly associated with things like monsters and visual aesthetics steeped in pre-surrealism and anti-realism. Think Hieronymus Bosch. Beyond visual art, the term grotesque spread to other fields such as literature and typography. Grotesque literature describes not only stories with imaginary creatures such as monsters or fairies, like Hunchback of Notre Dame, Frankenstein, etc., but also literature that blends styles or defies classical or conventional forms, like 16th and 17th century tragicomedies. These hodgepodge stylistic genres could be called grotesque because, like the original grotesques discovered in Nero's palace, they incorporate a variety of unlikely elements to create a new surprising whole. Grotesque is also a synonym, particularly in German, for sans-serif fonts, which is something I did not know until researching this episode. It's an odd adaptation of the term, originating in the 19th century. I call it odd because sans-serif fonts aren't grotesque in any of the senses thus far described. Recalling that the literal, original sense of grotesque is like a grotto or like a cave, some have suggested that the font was so-called because of the simplicity of its geometry. Grotesque fonts could conceivably be etched on a cave wall with a simple tool. That seems a little convoluted to me, but hey, maybe. Another explanation is that the font was called grotesque because of contemporary typesetters' response to the new style. Grotesque, or sans-serif fonts, were aesthetically in contrast to other more flowery typographic styles of the time. If anyone listening is a history of typography expert and has some wisdom to impart on this, send me an email at 
wordsforgranted at gmail.com. All right, that's it for today. As always, I hope you loved it and that you learned a few things that you didn't know before. Again, if you want to become a monthly contributor to the podcast for a buck, five bucks, 10 million bucks, whatever you want, you can uh, do that at patreon.com slash words for granted. You can follow me on Twitter at at words for granted. And as I just mentioned, the email for the show is words for granted at gmail.com. Feel free to write me at any time. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you here next time at Words for Granted.